Many women may consider freezing their eggs as a way to increase their chance of successful pregnancy later in life, but it's important to be aware of the risks, the costs, and the process in order to make an informed decision. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the authors of a short, informative practice article on elective egg freezing that's published in CMAJ. Dr. Jenna Gale and Dr. Paul Clayman are joining me today to discuss. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let's start with each of you telling listeners a bit about who you are. Dr. Clayman, what's your background? I started in the field of reproductive technology pretty early on in the mid-1980s. I uh, am now Professor Emeritus at the University of Ottawa after 32 years of practice. Uh, I'm a trained obstetrician gynecologist, but my entire medical practice has been focused on trying to help people with difficulties getting pregnant or who have a reason to consider reproductive technology uh, as part of their life experience. Um, I left Ottawa and moved to Jerusalem last summer. I have now started to work in an academic medical center, the Hadassah Hospital Medical Center and Medical School here in Jerusalem in the same field. So although I retired in Ontario, I've started an academic uh, work here in Jerusalem. Dr. Gale, how about you? I'm a newer recruit to the field of fertility, um, having just completed my uh, specialty training here in Ottawa in 2018. And I'm working as a fertility specialist at the Ottawa Fertility Centre um, here in Ottawa, Ontario. And I'm also completing my master's degree in clinical epidemiology. Okay, so let's get to the subject at hand. What is elective egg freezing? So it's great to start off with a definition of that. Um, elective egg freezing, also referred to as oocyte cryopreservation, refers to the treatment where a patient uh, elects to go through with ovarian stimulations, uh, followed by an egg retrieval procedure and freezing her eggs. These eggs are then kept uh, as a backup in the event of difficulty in achieving a healthy pregnancy in the future. And so reasons why women can uh, decide to delay their childbearing are, are a number of reasons, including personal, educational, professional, financial, uh, and we are seeing a lot more delay in childbearing and a higher number of women who are considering doing these this egg freezing treatment. Well, I, I just want to somehow give the audience appreciation of what the issue is. And as a very brief physiology intro, although it, it may not sound fair, man, Really, at any age, even a man who's 70, 80 years old could father a child because men make sperm de novo throughout their life. The issue here is that women, unlike men, don't make any new eggs. After birth, they're born with every egg they're ever going to have. And as women get older, particularly into their mid-30s and afterwards, two very important phenomena occur. One. And that's often only what other physicians and women are aware of. There's a profound reduction in the reserve of eggs left in their ovaries, which is indeed a very important reason why women, as they get older, have lower chances of getting pregnant. But the other, which not, not as many people realize, is that 
the proportion of eggs that women have that have a normal set of chromosomes falls quite profoundly. I would say in the average 29-year-old woman, the eggs that they release at that age, maybe almost 80% have a normal set of chromosomes. Whereas at the age of 39 or 40, about 80% of the eggs that are released have an abnormal set of chromosomes. It's for these two reasons why delaying childbearing can make it very, very difficult to have a healthy pregnancy, A, because of the profound loss of ovarian reserve and the profound increase in oocyte aneuploidy as women get into their mid and late 30s. And it's for that reason that this technology has become such a hot topic and why it is that women as they get, you don't really think of a woman 35 as being all that old, but getting older than that really reduces the chances even of a healthy fit woman of having a healthy pregnancy. So if they have to delay their childbearing into that age group, this technology offers somewhat of an insurance policy. So Dr. Gale, you said that women for many reasons are delaying childbearing. Is egg freezing therefore becoming more popular and has its popularity increased as we've seen a delay in women's childbearing? So we are indeed seeing a delay in the childbearing. Um, over the past 30 years, interestingly, the average age of a mother at first birth has increased from the age of 26 uh, to what it currently is at it's the age of 29 in Canada. And we are continuing, even over the past five years, to see an ongoing gradual increase. And in association with that increase, we are seeing that the popularity of this treatment is on the rise as well. And it is likely to continue and gain in popularity over time. However, overall, this is still not a very common treatment. Over the past uh, five years, we have seen uh, a more than quintuple number of uh, egg freezing cycles in Canada. Uh, in 2013, there were 94 cycles, and the last data that we have from 2018, there were a total of 504 cycles in Canada, and this is data from the uh, Canadian Assistive Reproductive Technologies Register, the annual report that was published this year. Now, is that a function of demand or a function of wider availability of services, do you think? I really do think that this is a function of demand. We haven't seen a huge increase in the number of fertility centers uh, over that same period of time, but I think it's a function of um, uh, women's education becoming more aware uh, that this is a treatment that is readily available to them and that they are seeking out. And a lot of women that I see for this purpose, uh, they really say that they've had to push to get a a consult with the fertility center to consider this treatment. Um, so they really are seeking it out. Here in, in Jerusalem, we're seeing an increased demand for this treatment. I think part of the reason there is less demand for the treatment, it is uh, particularly in Canada, US and Europe, a very expensive treatment. And generally, younger people don't have a lot of money. Uh, and uh, the paradox is you get older, you usually have maybe God forbid, trouble getting pregnant, but you have more money. It's very difficult to come up with the kind of funds. It's an insurance policy when you're 28, 30 years old for this kind of uh, treatment. So I think that's worth talking about at this point. 
What sort of cost are we looking at for this treatment? In your article, you lay it out very carefully in terms of the initial egg harvesting and then um, the freezing storage and later use of the eggs. Perhaps you could do that for us here. Absolutely. So the cost of egg freezing a treatment cycle does vary from clinic to clinic. Uh, typical cost per cycle for the procedures ranges between about six and nine thousand dollars, and the medications are an additional three to eight thousand dollars. And this is per cycle. Uh, we will get into it, but occasionally some women may it may be recommended that more than one cycle would be appropriate. And if that is the case, uh, these costs are incurred per cycle. Uh, in addition to these fees, uh, the clinics also have a storage fee that range between $300 and $500 per year to keep the eggs frozen. Now, in your article, you indicate that this is not covered by government medical insurance. Is there another way that women can pay for it uh, by private coverage? The private coverage does not would not cover the cost of the egg freezing procedures, but it could potentially cover part of the medication costs. Uh, so typical insurance policies, if they cover fertility medications, can often cover 80% or 100% medication costs. Now, this is in uh, contrast to um, cycles where uh, egg freezing is undertaken for a medical indication. And that's not what we're talking about in this piece or in this podcast today, but it, it's worth a mention because there are patients who do pursue egg freezing for medical indication, for example, uh, before going through chemotherapy, if they have a recent cancer diagnosis, um, or they proceed with uh, gender affirming surgeries. And those um, can be provincially insured, but that does vary by province. Can you guide us through the typical process for freezing eggs? So you have a woman who's thinking she's getting older and wants to find out more about freezing her eggs. What would you tell her and what would happen next? So the first step in considering this treatment would be a referral to a fertility specialist for a full evaluation uh, to undergo ovarian reserve testing and counseling about the risks, the benefits and alternative options to egg freezing. Um, when the patient is seen by the fertility specialist, they will undergo assessment and evaluation of markers of ovarian reserve. And the two most reliable markers of ovarian reserve being the serum blood level of AMH, which stands for anti-malarian hormone, and a transvaginal ultrasound for antral follicle count. And these are important to know because they're important tools for counseling a woman um, who's considering proceeding with egg freezing. Now, these markers of ovarian reserve or, um, you know, number of eggs that a woman has left, as it's commonly kind of referred to by patients, um, are, it's important to know that these are not, um, these don't predict a woman's fertility or her chance of achieving a pregnancy independent of fertility treatments. But they are important you know, when we're trying to figure out how many potential eggs could be frozen from a single cycle of ovarian stimulation and, and um, egg retrieval. So they're important for that reason. And so after all of the, that, those investigations and counseling, if a patient elects to proceed with egg freezing, a typical protocol starts with daily ovarian stimulation injections within a few days after the start of her period. And then these injections continue for about eight to 12 days, after which an ultrasound guided egg retrieval procedure uh, is performed by needle aspiration of the ovarian follicles. And often this procedure is done under conscious sedation and takes about five to 10 minutes. 
and typically is done at the same site as the fertility center. At the time of the procedure, the eggs are taken to the lab, they're stripped of the surrounding cells, and then they are the ones that are determined to be mature are then vitrified, which is a process of fast freezing the eggs. As far as what a patient can expect time being off work, uh, typically just the day of the egg retrieval and the following day uh, are needed off work. And from the initial referral to the fertility center to the time of the egg retrieval, um, that could be really as little as two to three months, uh, depending on how motivated a patient is to pursue the treatment. Okay, so I'm curious about some pain and bleeding. Any side effects of the procedure that you are aware of? Any procedure has associated side effects. I would say that this procedure is a pretty well-tolerated procedure. There is discomfort, which every clinic is a bit different how they manage. Uh, most clinics will provide conscious sedation throughout the procedure. Some clinics elect to um, do local freezing at the top of the vagina for the procedure. Um, the actual uh, time of the procedure is, is quite short, five to ten minutes, and, and most women do quite well with it. As far as bleeding complications, you know, the risk of major complications is very low, less than, less than 1%. The um, other complication to, I think, mention, because physicians listening to this podcast will be interested, is a complication which is potentially a severe one known as ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is associated with uh, increased fluid in the abdomen, uh, increase in blood concentration and, and dangers surrounding that. Using the hormonal manipulations typically used for egg freezing, though that particular complication is quite remote, probably no more, Jenna, probably than 1% or 2%. And if it does occur because of the methodology that we use to submit the ovary for egg freezing, is it quite transient in nature as opposed to a prolonged potential situation of danger in women who become pregnant with a fresh transfer or an embryo after a robust stimulation to the ovary. Do injectable medications have many side effects? The medications that are used to stimulate uh, the ovaries are subcutaneous injection medications, which are taken daily, and they do have side effects. The side effects include irritability, moodiness, forgetfulness, uh, occasionally headaches, um, and as a result of it being a subcutaneous injection, it can cause some local uh, irritation. As a result of their effect on the ovaries, um, like Dr. Clayman mentioned, uh, they cause enlargement over the, of the ovaries, which does uh, put women at, uh, albeit a low risk of this hyperstimulation syndrome, but many women do experience pelvic discomfort and abdominal bloating as a result of the ovaries, ovarian enlargement. What have you seen is the rate of success in your practice and what factors influence the rate of success? I think to answer this question, it's important to take a step back and talk about uh, what the important contributing factors to the overall success of elective egg freezing are. Uh, the two most important factors are, one is the patient's age at the time of the egg retrieval and egg freezing, and the second is ovarian reserve. And right now, because this is such a new and growing treatment, uh, the rate of success can only really be estimated. And uh, data surrounding live birth rates after elective egg freezing are still quite limited. One counseling tool that we have available is a publication in the Journal of uh, Human Reproduction by Goldman et al. in 2017, 
entitled Predicting the Likelihood of Live Birth for Elective Oocyte Cryopreservation, a Counseling Tool for Physicians and Patients. And from this publication, it appears that for a woman at or under the age of 35, approximately 14 eggs would be needed to be frozen to achieve an 80% chance of future live birth. We know that there are more eggs required at more advanced maternal ages. Uh, for example, at the age of 38, uh, it's predicted that between 25 and 30 eggs would be required to achieve the same 80% chance of future live birth. Now, in keeping with this information, we know that women who have a lower ovarian reserve, uh, based on their initial testing, would be counseled um, that it is predicted that more than one cycle of egg freezing would be necessary or recommended to achieve the desired number of frozen eggs. What I think is very interesting, personally, about this whole field of egg freezing, as Dr. Gale has pointed out, if we read through the lines, it's really only very effective, paradoxically, in younger women who freeze their eggs. By the time you're 38, to freeze 15, 20 eggs would require three, four, five treatments of IVF, which for most people is not a practical or tolerable thing to do. We're at age 30. Uh, you probably could freeze a dozen eggs with one treatment. Um, the thing that it's been noticed is that most women who are in that age group freeze eggs as an insurance policy, although it is new, we don't have more than 10 years of world experience. They're not coming back to use their eggs. These women typically, before they get too old, find the person they want to be with to have a family and have a family without needing to use those frozen eggs. So the, I think part of the counseling in, in, in talking to women about freezing their eggs is to talk about the likelihood that they may or may not need these eggs. And women that are older, they could try to freeze their eggs. It's not that often that a woman in their late 30s has a high ovarian reserve that with one or two treatments, you could freeze 15 to 20 eggs in one shot. So that the paradox is that it's kind of a little bit late once you're in your late 30s to use egg freezing as a, an insurance policy. And if you use egg freezing as insurance policy in your 20s or your early 30s, the likelihood that you'll actually use them is pretty low. That's a great point. And studies today are showing that uh, the usage rates are as low as 3 to 10%. Uh, so I think that's a really important point when we're counseling these women. And interestingly, there are these cost-effectiveness modeling scenarios uh, that suggest that the greatest cost-benefit for women to freeze their eggs is closer to the age of 37. So say, for example, a woman is over the age of 35 and she goes to her doctor and wants to freeze her eggs. How would you advise a physician to go about counseling this woman in a step-by-step -step process? So she's 37. What would you discuss first? And then if she still wanted to proceed with it, what would you then discuss in terms of when she might use the eggs? I think uh, the first approach would be to first gather some information from this woman, including whether she's at a point in her life that she wants to start a family or if she has been trying to achieve a pregnancy. Um, because we have been approached by some patients where they say they want to proceed with egg freezing, but the conversation, uh, there's greater depth to that conversation and what they really want uh, perhaps is a family sooner. 
And so I think that this is a really good one, a good opportunity for pre-pregnancy counseling and optimization. So a full review of history of medications, making sure they're on the prenatal vitamin and, and to see if perhaps they are at a point where they just want to start a family. Egg freezing certainly does not guarantee a child later in life. And the highest likelihood of achieving a baby would be to try for a child in kind of the immediate or near future, either with a partner or, for example, donor sperm inseminations. If the woman is indeed in a situation where she is not in a position to start a family in the near future, then elective egg freezing is a reasonable consideration. And we do recommend referrals to a fertility specialist for a full evaluation and counseling of all options. And to take it from that point, I think would be best. I find it's practical as part of how I would counsel a woman at age 37. I think the most important information is what Dr. Gale has said, but just to help intelligent thinking uh, women wrap their minds around the technology at that age every egg that she freezes has a potential of somewhere between three and five percent of leading to a baby later so that gives them a sense of how many eggs they would need to freeze to really have a reasonable chance of of using that as an insurance policy five, six, seven, eight, ten years later. Just a helpful point that a family doctor could even take that information so that when she sees the fertility doctor, she should speak to the fertility doctor after assessment of egg reserve, how many eggs they think they could probably freeze with one treatment of IVF. Um, Often we use this example of a woman who's 35 years of age, and the reason is that we know that the decline in fertility and the risk of infertility are much greater after that age. Um, And that optimal success with egg freezing occurs before the age of 35. But I also think it's important to note that certain women under the age of 35 may also consider egg freezing, uh, especially in the setting of decreased ovarian reserve. Risk factors for decreased ovarian reserve do exist, like prior chemotherapy or history of ovarian surgery or uh, family history of early menopause. Um, However, many women have decreased ovarian reserve without any identifiable risk factors. Um, And it's not possible to identify unless ovarian reserve testing is conducted. For this reason, um, women under the age of 35 may also benefit from a consultation with a specialist to discuss this option of uh, egg freezing. And it may be that she has normal ovarian reserve and this treatment is not recommended until she's closer to the age of 35 as she's still in a position to consider it. Um, But we have seen situations where patients are seen at the age of 35, 36, and they are already do have quite low ovarian reserve and are not really candidates for, uh, or optimal candidates to pursue this treatment at that point. So, when you're talking about a 3 to 5% chance from each egg, does that mean that when the woman decides to um, use her eggs, that you use more than one egg? Absolutely. When one thaws the egg, not all the eggs survive the thaw. When you then go ahead and put the sperm into the egg to try to fertilize that egg, only a certain proportion of those eggs will successfully fertilize. And I think probably mostly because of the problem which we talked about earlier called aneuploidy, where a high proportion of these eggs are not chromosomally normal, only a certain proportion of those eggs that successfully fertilize will grow into an embryo that grows three, five days later that looks like a healthy enough embryo to try for pregnancy. And for that reason, 
in my practice, I would recommend to women who have frozen eggs and now they find the partner they want to have them with or they're going to use donor sperm, that they actually thaw all the eggs, try to fertilize them, grow the embryos out, and put one, maybe two embryos into the uterus. And at that point, the embryos, now that they're embryos, that is, they fertilized and grown for a few days, can actually be refrozen with a, a very high uh, post-thaw survival and potential for pregnancy after doing that later on to have maybe baby number two. So let's go on to the aspect of freezing the eggs themselves. Now, in your article, you point out, I think it's in point number five, that there is no expiry date on frozen eggs. But obviously, there is a an expiry date on a woman's ability to bear a child or um, definitely an increasing risk uh, associated with with carrying a child when you're older. Can you please explain to us how long eggs should be frozen for um, and what the risks are and the costs and how they are then used later and disposed of? So if a woman comes back uh, in the future, and I, I, your point is an important one, that we really don't have an expiry date on these frozen eggs and they can be stored for many years. In the future, if a patient who has eggs frozen is in a position where they want to use these eggs and they return to the fertility center, and you're right, there are additional uh, costs related to the thaw of these eggs, the fertilization, and the embryo transfers. So at that point, as Dr. Clayman mentioned, we do recommend thawing all of the eggs or at least a good proportion of them because we know uh, that this natural process of attrition occurs uh, from thaw of the eggs through to the stage at which the embryo is transferred. Um, so after they're fertilized with sperm, they're grown in the lab for three to five days before the embryo transfer. And the chance of pregnancy uh, at the time of the embryo transfer is related to the age the woman was when those eggs were frozen. However, as you mentioned, it is important to keep in mind that pregnancy at a more advanced maternal age does increase the risk of complications. And uh, clinics do have an age cutoff after which they will not proceed with an embryo transfer because of too great risk. So in addition to us previously discussing the changes in fertility related to advancing age, there are much higher uh, rates of pregnancy complications associated with pregnancy at an advanced maternal age. For example, over the age of 40, women have a, a greater than 50% chance of requiring a cesarean delivery. They have three times greater risk of gestational diabetes and uh, placenta previa much higher rates of low birth weight, intrauterine growth restriction, and uh, preterm birth, among a few other complications. That's really valuable information, which brings me back to the point that you made, that many people might come seeking egg freezing who actually really just want to have a child. And when you were talking about that being the first step in counseling, I can imagine a scenario where somebody isn't with the partner that they think they would want to be with for the rest of their life. And so they think about egg freezing and they might actually decide, given the information that we're discussing now, that it would be healthier and more appropriate for themselves to go ahead with having children without the partner that they had hoped to have by that age or something like that. I expect you see scenarios like that fairly often. Exactly. Uh, this is why it's so important to have a detailed conversation with a specialist about all of the options to make sure that those are all very clear. Um, because a woman may not be in a place where she wants to have a, a baby with her partner. Um, so it, it is important just to talk about all of the option. Now, 
Elective egg freezing allows the patient who, for various reasons, are postponing childbearing to later in life to increase the probability of having a genetically related child later on. Uh, but it is important to talk about all options. And one of those options may be to do nothing and know that um, in the future, if there's difficulty in achieving a pregnancy, for example, over the age of 40, that there's also the option of using donor eggs. Uh, so eggs from either uh, a known donor, someone known to that person, or an anonymous um, egg donation to improve the chance of achieving a pregnancy. One of the most important reasons and why I was so, so impressed that Dr. Gale had thought to publish this piece in CMHA is really to allow primary care doctors to enter into the counselling. I don't want to, God forbid, to cast aspersions on colleagues, but the problem in Canada and for jurisdictions all over the world for patients really to get the truth is that there is a commercial element, and when it comes to having to run a fertility centre and having enough uh, patients coming through that are paying high amounts for these treatments, I'm afraid that it may count, color the counseling they get from a fertility specialist. And for that reason, I think it's very helpful that primary care physicians have a little bit of understanding of this technology and its limitations so that they can sort of help patients make a judgment as to whether or not the counseling they're getting from a fertility specialist is really a, a complete and open counseling and not you know, colored too much by the commercial element of the doctors need to have the patient come through and have treatments, if you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. And that's really useful. I have one more question. It's about um, what happens to embryos. I mean, uh, sorry, what happens to oocytes that are never claimed? What do you do with those eggs? I think your error in saying first embryos, oh, I meant eggs is also correct. This is an extremely difficult paradox facing fertility clinics all across the planet. There are eggs, embryos, and sperm, probably from hundreds of thousands, if not maybe even in around a million, that are being stored for years and years and years, and everybody's too afraid to discard them. So they're being kept in, who knows, maybe they may even go to the next generation. It's a very difficult problem, and I, unless Jenna has heard differently, nobody to my knowledge has come up with a solution unless governments mandate that they can only be kept for 10 years or something like that. It's going to be very difficult for physicians to go and discard these eggs or even embryos that are left unclaimed. I think it's important for the public to know about. It's an extremely difficult problem. I agree, which is why we encourage when, you know, we have, there are these storage fees uh, to keep the eggs frozen and at the point where they do not wish to use these eggs and they know that they will not be pursuing any further pregnancies, uh, typically the, the clinics want them to alert them of that and then to sign a way to uh, discard the eggs or embryos as it be. Well, thank you for talking to me today. Um, it's been a wonderful learning experience for me and I hope for lots of our listeners too. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Jenna Gale and Dr. Paul Clayman. Dr. Paul Clayman is a professor emeritus of the University of Ottawa and is currently professor of obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive medicine at Hadassah University Hospital in Jerusalem.
Dr. Jenna Gale is a gynecologist and specialist in reproductive endocrinology and infertility in Ottawa and is lecturer at the University of Ottawa Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.